We're going to be looking at verse 13 through 16. Before we begin, let's pray. Father, you are infinitely glorious and worthy of all praise and all honor and all glory. We ask that you give us eyes to see more clearly this morning your glory and your worth and your majesty, and that you would change our hearts and that you would cause us to bear much fruit for, for your glory, that you would make us like Christ. So in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, let's look at this text, um, verses 13 through 16. And then I will give you kind of my summation of the point of the text, and then we'll look at how we got there. So, chapter 5 of Matthew, starting in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So, firstly, what, what we need to see is um, a question that Dakota and I have talked about, and he says that he looks at whenever he's preparing to preach, and he asks the question, why is this here? So why is this passage after that passage and before this passage, and why is it in this spot in the, in the chapter? So, in other words, we're looking at context. Um, Dr. Steve Lawson says a, uh, a text without a context is a pretext, and then he'll go on to say in real estate, everybody knows the three main things of real estate is location, location, location. And when it comes to scripture and seeing the intended purpose, it's context, context, context. So... Let's look at the context of this passage and understand that it is connected to verses 2 through 12. I, I, as I was studying this, I, I wished that the subheadings weren't actually there or that in the subheadings you had the Beatitudes or the Blessed Ones, uh, colon, salt and light, because it all fits together. Jesus is continuing this thought about the, the happy ones, the Blessed Ones, or as we've seen, the Christian and he's not changing gears. He's not shifting his focus from, from one set of people to another set of people. This is all combined, a continuation of the blessed ones. So let's look back real quickly here. Who are the blessed ones? Um, and how did I come to that conclusion that it's all together? Well, if you see the end of verse 12, you see that word you. And then the very first word of the next verse is also you. So he, it's quite clear that this is connected. If I'm speaking to someone and I am, am telling them something, and I say, you are this, and then the very next word I say is, you are this, probably I'm focusing on that person, and I'm not shifting gears, I'm not shifting topics, I'm not shifting my focus from one side to the other. So that those, those two U's there, the W's, <laughs> uh, they connect the two passages there. So let's go back then. So who are the blessed ones? 
because they're apparently the salt of the earth, right? And then, and then they're also the light of the world. So we need to recap, because it's been a few weeks since we started this, who are the blessed ones and why are they the salt and light, which is what we're going to get into later. So starting in verse 3 there, they are the poor in spirit. So remember that those are the ones who see their sin before God, and they are, um, they are, they are understanding that they are sinners, that their sin makes them far away from the Lord, that they have rebelled. And this is us. This is us. I, I say they as this kind of vague term, but this includes myself and all of us who are, who are believers in Christ. We have seen our sin in light of a holy and perfect God. And what do we do with that? We mourn over that. So that's verse 4. We mourn over our sin and our rebellion against God, our hatred of God, as the Bible says. Uh, and then that makes us meek and causes us to realize who we are and what position we are in in comparison to God. It means we're not putting ourselves before God. We understand that He is greater and more holy and more perfect and more righteous than we are. And so we are meek and humbled and put ourselves in the right place. And then after we've done that, that leads us to a hungering and a thirsting for righteousness. And we looked at in verse 6 that that righteousness is Christ. And at the end of verse 6, he says, they're satisfied. And so they've seen their sin, they've mourned their sin, they understand their position, and they long to be righteous. But the only way to be righteous is to be satisfied with an outside righteousness. And if Christ is righteous and he attained righteousness in the flesh, we're only satisfied by Christ. And so when we are satisfied with Christ's righteousness, when he imputes his righteousness on us, which is just a big word for saying he, he puts his righteousness on us. That's how I remember that, impute. He puts his righteousness on us. He gives us the righteousness he attained in the flesh by living perfectly and um, doing the law, the complete full law, which we'll see next week in verse 17. Um, he gives us that righteousness, and what that righteousness does is begin to produce fruit in our lives. And that's part of what we see in verses 13 through 16 uh, as, as being the meaning of salt and light. But that fruit in the first part of this passage is mercy, is purity of heart, and is, is peacemaking. And those believers, those blessed ones, or the happy ones who are producing this fruit inevitably are persecuted. Jesus promises persecution. If they killed him, and he is our savior, he's our king, how much more should we expect from the world? We shouldn't expect anything less from those who killed our king, the light of the world. Uh, so he tells us in verses 11 through 12, uh, actually just in 12, he, then he says, rejoice and be glad when you're persecuted. And that's kind of uh, opposite to what you would think would happen. That's, that's not what the world would do. The world would be persecuted and they would try to figure out and squirm out of however they were being persecuted and maybe change their stance on things. We see, see this a lot. I don't like to be political, but we see this a lot, specifically in politicians where they'll speak something and they find out people don't like it and they get persecuted for it, so they kind of shift a little bit and try to get out of the persecution. Jesus doesn't say, try to get around the persecution. Try to sneak on by. Try to, try to make sure everybody's satisfied or likes you. That's not what he says. He says rejoice when you're persecuted. And I know Dakota preached a whole sermon on that, but it's been two weeks. So we're, and it's part of what we're looking at. So then, after saying rejoice and be glad at persecution, which is kind of shocking and... Um, 
like, wow, well, that's kind of hard. Then he says, you are the salt of the earth. So it's no coincidence that he says, you are the salt of the earth, right after he says that the blessed one will produce fruit and be persecuted for it, and that they are to be right, or rejoicing and glad in that persecution. So what he means is that those who rejoice and are glad in persecution are the salt of the earth. Well, what does that mean? Why, how is that salty to the earth? Well, the next part of that sentence, I think, I think helps us understand what he means by salt. Uh, and it says, but if salt has lost its taste. And so I, I was looking up kind of the historical background of salt, and there <laughs> there's a lot. Uh, so I wrote some of it down, and I'll just read through it for you so we kind of get a, a, a historical background. Because in our context, in our modern world, this is one of the, the gaps we have to bridge when, we, when we're studying scripture and trying to find the intended uh, purpose of a text, we have to bridge some gaps. So language is one, uh, and, and cultural norms and cultural importances are another gap that we have to bridge. So here's, here's some historical background on salt. Well, this isn't historical background. This is uh, just an amazing fact. It cannot be destroyed by fire or time, which when Jesus calls the blessed ones salt, like, and okay, thank you. <laughs> so, as I was studying this week, there is no way I could have printed off sheet after sheet after sheet on salt alone, and I could have come and just read the sheet, and it would have taken several hours for us to get through the significance of salt, and it blows my mind every time I study or prepare for anything or just go deep. How many connections are in Scripture? How glorious and how deep our God is. He is shallow enough for children to understand and deep enough that the most intellectual in the world could never go and plumb his depths. And his word is no different. So that salt, that the connection with salt not being able to be destroyed by fire or time and that he has already connected the Christian with the salt of the earth is a promise that he will keep us and bring us to that day of salvation and make us like himself, sanctifying us, making us like himself, and bringing us to himself. So some more background on salt. Uh, it was one of the most valuable resources in history. It had a social and economic purpose. There were taxes imposed on salt. It was so valuable. Uh, it was considered a symbol of luxury in Egypt. The Egyptians would use it to embalm uh, their dead and would also leave it in their tombs. It was a symbol of friendship. So major conflicts would end with a meal of salt and bread. And if, if the resolution to the conflict was violated or the friendship or loyalty was violated uh, after eating this meal of salt and bread, you were considered a traitor and you were treated as such. So pretty crazy and significant, the, the historical background of salt. But then you have a biblical background of salt. And so in the Bible, we see salt being a symbol for life and death. Um, I even found, it's been my whole life in the church and didn't know that there is a covenant of salt. I don't know if maybe some of you are more astute in your reading than I am, but I have missed that somehow every time I read, um, well, Leviticus 2.18. So there's a covenant with Aaron uh, and the priesthood. God is giving the priesthood to Aaron and the Levites forever for Israel, and it's called the covenant of salt. 
And then in 2 Chronicles, chapter 13, I think it's verse 5. I forget what chapter it is. Um, the, the covenant to David for the kingship of Israel for all of eternity, which we know is Christ, that covenant is called a covenant of salt. So salt is very significant. And the reason I bring all this up, well, let me tell you a little bit more about the covenant of salt and what it could be. And I don't think this is the point, but just to express the depth of God's word. When Jesus says that his bride, being the Christian or the blessed one, the, the happy ones who have seen their sin and been saved from it, we know as a Christian, so I'm just going to say Christian from now on. When he says that the Christian is salt of the earth, there could be this underlying meaning of the church, his bride, being a gift given from the Father to the Son as a perpetual covenant for all eternity so that his bride is, is, is a gift to the Son which glorifies the Son and uh, conveys the eternality of his church, his bride, and what Christ has done on the cross for his church. So, again, I don't think that's the main point, but I say that in order to let you know the depth of every passage in Scripture. You can go so deep, and I could go on so many rabbit trails, and I will try my best not to, but with each trail you find and each path and how deep you go, it's another crack in that dim mirror that we see through. This, we have this, we see dimly as through a mirror and every shade of glory, every glimmer of glory of God's glory as we plumb the depths of his word is a crack in that mirror to see him more clearly and to be in awe of him. That's the point of seeing his glory is to be in awe and bring us to worship. I, there are, this, I'm going to get on a rabbit trail. We're, there are a lot of churches that put the music and worship as the primary focus of their worship service, as if, as if the music is going to bring someone to an awe of Christ. Now, songs can do that, um, but it's usually the words exemplifying and glorifying Christ. And so in our worship, we are to start with truth, start with his word, and let his truth bring us to an understanding of who he is and be in awe of him so that our response is worship. That's why we sing after the message, too, so that what we hear stirs up, stirs up worship in us. Now I've gotten on a rabbit trail, and I need to come back to where I was going with that. Um, so, yes, sharpen your shovels and dig deep because there's so much there. So, okay, so what do I think is the intended purpose of Jesus saying that Christians are salt of the earth? I think, like I mentioned, the second part of that verse is very helpful for us. But if salt has lost its taste, and so there's something going on here with how, with how our actions and how the fruit that we produce, which is a, uh, another way for us to look at this, I think that's helpful for our context, uh, is, is tasting to the world. So Martin Lloyd-Jones says that this passage is the Christian's relationship to the world. And so how we respond this is why I'm, I'm trying to connect verses 12 and 13 here. How we respond to persecution and rejoicing and gladness is giving the world a taste that they don't understand and can't comprehend, but they know it's good. I was listening to a podcast this week. It's a secular news political commentary podcast. Um, but what struck me was they were, they were talking about 
all of the things that are happening in the world, and they recognize it as evil, and even in some instances, demonic. And, and they are, they're agnostic, meaning they believe in some form of God, but they don't think that he can be known. And even the unbeliever, one of them said on this, this podcast that the opposite of what's happening in the world is the Bible and Christianity. And I was like, what? Sorry. That's how blown away I was. I was sitting in the tractor. I almost had to stop the tractor and just like, whoa. Even the unbeliever understands this is what Christians should look like, the exact opposite of what we see in the world. That Christians should be salt or producing fruit that is the opposite of what unbelievers produce. And that's what Jesus is talking about. So, how, so Christians are to taste differently. So in persecution, they rejoice and they are glad. Now, how do they do that? Why do they do that? Well, it's because, namely, firstly, we see the glory of Christ. That we see his worth. And he tells us that if we are persecuted, our reward is great in heaven. If we're persecuted for his sake, then we recognize that he is bringing us to himself. But also, James 1, actually, let's, let's go to uh, 2 Corinthians 6, firstly, because Paul is going to talk about uh, himself being persecuted. And there's another place where Paul talks about, and he kind of goes through this big list of all uh, the persecution he's experienced. Like, the dude is shipwrecked three or four times. He's beaten by rods more times than I can remember probably more times than he can remember. He's imprisoned for years' worth of his life and is imprisoned for a few years before he's finally executed for believing in Jesus and loving Jesus. And yet, we're going to see in verse 10 of chapter 6, he's sorrowful yet always rejoicing. So before we go there, let's start in verse 4. And uh, in, in the start of verse 4, he says, but as servants of God. So he's about to say we commend ourselves. So we need to recognize he's not commending himself as a man, as merely Paul. We're, we're tempted to see Paul and the authors of Scripture as almost deities. And, man, I... There is a... a, a the Catholic Church calls certain Christian saints. If you want to be biblical, we're all saints. There's not better Christians than other Christians. There's just people who are used by God greater in our eyes, but his, I'm getting on a rabbit trail. So anyway, I'm going to come back. Uh, verse 4, but as servants of God, so he's going to tell them we commend ourselves in every way. He's saying we are servants of God. Our message to you was Christ. Look at my life. Look at our lives. Look at the fruit we're producing. Remember the taste of the salt that we gave to you. We commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in what? In afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. Well, that sounds an awful lot like Paul's being persecuted, does it not? And then he goes on... Um, We'll skip down to, to verse 10, because this is where I, I want to go with this. And I'm going to run out of time if I don't move on. He goes through some more of these. Um, namely, the big ones are by the power of God and the Holy Spirit. So he's making sure they know the salt, me being salt and producing fruit that you all 
saw and tasted of was not by my strength. It was not, not by my doing. And that's, that's, the, that's key, and he's making sure they remember that. They, the Corinthians should know that, and we should know that. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But he gets down to verse 10. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. How in the world are we to be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing? Paul has experienced all of these calamities and labors and hunger and sleepless night and beatings more than we can comprehend right now as Americans. And, and he understands that and it's sorrowful to him and he feels that so that for those of us who do experience the depravity of the world, we have all experienced sorrow. Maybe we're still experiencing sorrow and certainly we, we all will experience sorrow. Not, he's not being chipper. John Piper uses that word, chipper, which is, is just to say they're not shallow. They're not naive to the depravity of the world. They don't act like what hurts doesn't hurt. Paul is, is telling them, your unbelief and your distraction by everything else other than putting your focus on Christ and all these other beatings, yes, they hurt, and it's real. And it's sorrowful, yet I rejoice because of Christ. And we have that as a, as a fighter verse, Philippians 3, is that right? 3, 7 through 12, that he counts all things as rubbish. I wish Karen was here. She could say rubbish better than I could say rubbish. Um, but he counts all things as rubbish for what? For the sake of knowing Christ. So it would be... In essence, you put Christ, who is the exact imprint and of God and, and the manifest glory of the Father to us, you put him on one side of the scale, and then you come up with a list of all the things you think are valuable. And you're going to have to take your time because it's going to have to be a pretty big list. And essentially, what you're going to end up with is an elephant on one side of the scale and a little bird feather on the other side. You're going to see that and you're going to say, well, that's not even worth my time putting on the scale because... Christ is infinitely more valuable than anything I can come up with. And that's why Paul rejoices and is glad in persecution because he knows it's bringing him to salvation. James chapter 1, verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? For you know that testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete Lacking in nothing. So this persecution, this suffering, this sorrow that we experience as Christians, we rejoice because we know that it is God who is bringing us to himself to make us more like Jesus. This boy's going to have to learn one day. He's going to have to sit there and listen. Um, now I got all distracted by a new dad for you. There you go. Um, so he's bringing us to himself. He is sanctifying us. Um, and that's why we rejoice because... Uh, <laughs> I love it when he does this. John, uh, John chapter 15, I think. Yeah, John chapter 15. Oh, we're still in the first part, aren't we? Okay. Uh, John chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So the persecution and the sorrow we rejoice in because we understand that he is 
pruning us to make us more like Christ so that we produce more fruit so, so that he will be glorified, which is, is verse 16. And spoiler, that's the point of verses 2 through 15, that the Father receives glory. So this is, this is being salt to a world who is in darkness and doesn't know taste. Now, there's another aspect to being salt. Salt is a preservative. Um, and salt, it's real salt that is salt can't lose its saltiness. So there is salt that doesn't have any taste. But salt that has taste can't become not salt. So that leads us to the second part of this verse. In, in 13, back in Matthew chapter 5. I'm sorry, I'm jumping around. How shall its saltiness be restored? Oh, sorry. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, this correlates with John chapter 15 and verse 2. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And then it also correlates with Hebrews chapter 6. Um, being that those who shared in the Holy Spirit and the good have tasted the goodness of the gifts of God's word uh, and, ha- and have fallen away, uh, it is impossible for them to be restored to repentance. Now, that's hard, but these are not my words. I don't think this is, though those things correlate, along with 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, if they go out from us, they were never of us. Those things correlate, but I don't think the intention of Jesus here is to tell us, you make that judgment. You make that final call. You know, if they go out from you, then they were never of you, and you have nothing to do with them because they'll never be brought back to repentance. That's not ever what Scripture says for us to do. We don't make that call. I think what Jesus is saying here is you worry about the log in your own face before you worry about the splinter in someone else's. If you find yourself not producing fruit and not being salt and not giving the world a taste that they don't understand but in love in some regards. If you see that in your life, praise the Lord, turn and repent because he's brought you to repentance and ask him to produce in you more fruit. And the reason I say produce in us more fruit is back in John chapter 15. I'm going to flip back and forth there. So if you have a finger, you can hold it there. I hope you do. I have something. Throw a pin there. Uh, verse, verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So that if we're not producing Fruit, and if we're not salty to the world, being a reflection of God's goodness and grace and mercy and glory, and we see that, we run to Christ. And what a gift repentance is. Because if we're not doing that, we're not abiding in Him or in His Word. Verse 6, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Now, we're going to pause there, because verse 8 is correlated with, with verse 16, but we're going to come back to that. Uh, but before we do, let's, let's look at verse 14 and 15. 
He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So this, this is a little easier for us to understand because we value light, obviously. Uh, we don't value salt as much as they used to in uh, the ancient cultures and in some Middle Eastern cultures. But we value light, and so we kind of understand the purpose of light. And when he says, you are the light of the world, we understand that the world is in darkness and hates the light. I think that's John chapter 3, and I meant to mark it and go to it, but maybe I don't have time. And so we understand that a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So we're, we're getting this, this illustration, this metaphor. We're, we're understanding that the light is to shine in the darkness. But Jesus calls Christians the light of the world. And yet John in chapter 1 says that Jesus is the light of the world. And then John in chapter 3, I'm just going to go there. John chapter 3. I'm going to have to flip to it. I apologize. Bible takes a lot longer to flip through than the other ones. John chapter 3, verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And so when Jesus, when Jesus calls us the light of the world, he is not saying that you have light in and of yourself, that you are light producing. We are essentially a light bulb. All right, we, have, we are not the source of light. We reflect the light. The electricity is the source of light for the light bulb. So the light bulb doesn't produce light. Just like we don't produce light of ourselves, we produce light by Christ in us so that we say with Paul, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So that we're finding that any fruit we bear and any light we produce and any saltiness that the world tastes from us is because of Christ. So how are you, how are you going to do those things by abiding in him and abiding in his word? So let's move on uh, to verse 16. I took too long through the first half of the first verse. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that... Now here's... This is incredible. Uh, yesterday, Dakota and I were talking, and he sent me a... He's never done this, and I'm going to tell this story because he's never done this to me before. I, never given me any advice or any kind of, hey, look at this, for any preparation that I've done for school or for speaking or anything. And he sends me this text, and he says, the text said, I would probably mention John 17, 15. And... I read 1517 for some reason. Uh, so the Lord, <laughs> the Lord gave me a moment. He gave me a moment of dyslexia, essentially, so that I would read what was not there and see in John 15 all that is there. And then he would lead me to understand that verse 16 is the point of 2 through 15. So if you want to know why God saves some. If you want to know why people are poor in spirit, see their sin, repent of their sin, hunger and thirst for righteousness, are satisfied by righteousness. If you want to know why people then, Christians then, produce fruit, are persecuted for that fruit, 
and are called to rejoice in that fruit. Here it is, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven so that everything, as Romans eleven thirty six says, is for the glory of God. From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So when you go back to John chapter 15 and you look at verse 8, here's the correlation. By this, my Father is glorified. Hmm, sounds a lot like verse 16 in Matthew 5, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father. By this, John 15, 8, I'm jumping back and forth. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now we've already looked at how you bear fruit. You abide in Christ and you only bear fruit if you abide in Christ and know his word. And it is all for the glory of God. James, um, James 2, verse 18, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So that glory is given to God by the good works we do, but, but James and the rest of Scripture is saying, You don't have truly good works unless you have faith. I heard, it, I heard it put this way, being leads to doing. Believing in Christ, seeing his glory and his worth, leads to loving him and obeying him and walking in the good works which he has prepared beforehand from before the foundations of the world for us to walk in. But we only do that when we see Christ. And how do we see Christ? It's a gift of God. How, what does he tell Peter in, uh, later in Matthew? And I forget what chapter it is. Uh, he's asking his disciples, who do they say that I am? And the disciples respond, oh, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist brought back from the dead, because at that point, John the Baptist is not alive. And he says, but who do you say I am? And it's funny, because like, I just get this, like Peter blurts out. He doesn't even give anybody else a chance to respond. He just blurts out, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. It's easy. And what is Jesus' response to Peter? Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father who is in heaven. And so all of this, 3 through 15, the Lord's working in our lives, the Lord's producing fruit in our lives, strengthening us through persecution, through sorrow, making us real, not naive to the world, but real and yet rejoicing so that we can encourage each other and others and be salt to the earth. All of this is for his glory. Yeah, it's, it's awesome, because he's the only one worthy of it. See, if we try to do good works in our own strength, it usually ends up for our own glory, right? I know that before Christ, every so-called good work that you might, you might think was good work, like on a horizontal level, looks good. There's always an underlying sense of selfish ambition, or vain glory, or a desire to be seen as a good person even, to be promoted, even, even to be promoted in good places, to be set before people to say good things. If you are doing those according to your own strength, there's always an underlying tint of selfishness. And that, as we've seen uh, in verse 6, when we looked at righteousness, is as filthy rags before the Lord. 
so that because we are sinful and we are tainted with sin, any good work we do of our own is also tainted with sin. But in Christ and His righteousness, good works done through His strength are done for the glory of God, and that's how they are called good works. Those glorify the Lord. So uh, I'm coming back here. Why, why, why is Jesus concerned with the Father getting glory? Again, He's the only one worthy. If well, God is 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 says He's a jealous God, and I know Oprah doesn't like that, and I know some people in the church don't like that either. Why does He say He's a jealous God, and why can He be a jealous God? Because He is the most valuable being. In all of creation, he literally created it, so he has to be the most valuable. And if he considers himself as anything less than most valuable, he's not God. So that's why he puts himself forward and desires that we know him, not that we obtain possessions in this earth. Like I've already mentioned, they're worthless. In comparison to Christ, they're rubbish. He is worthy of worship and time and pursuits. And if we pursue anything before him, we're not worthy of him. And if we pursue him in order that we would pursue other things, we're still not worthy of him because there's a desire for other things. Now, we desire other things, but if we desire those things, if we desire Christ in order to get things, we don't get it. Christ is imminent above all and worth more than we can comprehend here. But we should, as we looked at in the beginning, sharpen our shovels, dig deep, and search for his glory and his worth in order that he would change our hearts and minds and make us more like him so that we produce fruit and light and salt. And when we are persecuted for it, rejoice and be glad because he's making us like himself. That's something um, I, I had an experience a few weeks ago. I was talking to Dakota. I talk to you a lot, don't I? Um, and he said something that has stuck with me and kind of changed my perspective. And it was actually, I sinned and then so was shown that I sinned, repented, and then learned. And he said that, praise God for his sanctifying work in our lives. So that when we see ourselves producing fruit and being light and salt, we shouldn't go, hmm, yeah, I'm starting to get this. I think I got it figured out now. Paul says, not that I've attained it, but I press on. And so we don't say, yeah, I'm starting to be a pretty good Christian. We fall on our knees and we say, how amazing that God Almighty, the creator of everything, the one who stoops to see the stars, would work in my life to make me like his son, would love me, have grace and mercy for me and want to want me to abide with him for all eternity. That is insane. And so much so that his son put on flesh and he gives himself to us. So when Paul says he has given us his son, how will he not also with all like give us everything else? Like Christ is the greatest treasure that heaven has and he's given him to us. How, why do we worry about anything else? We've already received the greatest treasure if we receive Christ, if we have put our, our trust and hope in Christ and rest on his mercy and his righteousness. 
for our own righteousness before the Father. So, in, in summation here, so that I don't continue on to bore you, the Christian's relationship to the world is to produce fruit, not for their own glory, but for the glory of God Almighty. And when they are persecuted, they rejoice because they are being made like Christ. Let's pray. And then we'll, we'll sing and be dismissed. Father, you are infinitely glorious and we do not even scratch the surface of being able to comprehend your worth and your majesty. We thank you and praise you for your word that you have revealed yourself to us, that you desire for us to know you, that you have sent your son and given us your son to fulfill the law and give us his righteousness and open our hearts and our minds to know you, to be able to worship you and to walk in good works for your glory. So continue to guide us and lead us and give us a desire for your word. Give us a desire to be salt and light that those who you are bringing to yourself would see the good works that you are doing through us and would turn and give you glory and long to know you. Because we confess and we admit as one body this morning that you alone are worthy. And that all our pursuits outside of you are a waste. And if we build the house, it will surely fall. But if you build it, it will last forever. So use us for your glory. Cause us to be light. And it's only in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Take a few seconds here and meditate on God's word. And then we'll stand and sing. And Dakota will dismiss us.